Dr. Michael Horn speaks and writes about the future of education and works with a number of organizations to improve the lives of as many students as possible. Dr. Horn is the author and co-author of multiple books, papers, and articles on education, including the award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, and the Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Michael Horn. Sounds good. All right. So I, I had, I'm pulling my notes up here. I had a mentor of mine at a charter school when I was teaching at a charter school in Philadelphia, a mastery charter school. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. A, I had a mentor of mine, and God knows what I said to warrant this, but she said, Kevin, we don't experiment on children. And of course, I wasn't suggesting, you know, <laughs> any crazy experiment, but I was probably just like toying with things that we could do in a classroom or some policy. Who knows? Again, what I said. But I remember that striking me as um, as really easily said and very salient because it sounds like, of course, we don't experiment on children. But in reading up on you, I, I get the sense that you would disagree with that. And I'd be very curious as to hear <laughs> what your d- disagreement would entail. Oh, I love I, I love the question. Uh, it's and it's something I've actually been talking about several times this week. So it's it's topical and top of mind. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think the current education system, we don't think of it as an experiment on children because we've been doing it for so long, sure. but there's no like randomized controlled trial behind it, nor was there a purpose of like educating each and every child to their full potential. And yet we keep doing it. And then sort of the implication of a sentence like that, right, is, well, trying something different for a child would be somehow worse than what we have right now. And just couldn't disagree more because like you look at the traditional system we have now, it's clearly failing lots of kids. It's not research based. As I said, we clearly can do better for kids and we, we don't have to do it blindly or en masse. You know, what I would advocate it for is take the research, design some prototypes, some new ways to do things that look like they should have better impact like take other, you know, things that people have done that have had better impact, put them into place, but put them into place with just like a, a small number of students, right? Like you don't have to do the entire school or sure. an entire charter system or an entire district or entire state or country, like try it out. And if it works great, then you can double down and start to expand and other parents and kids and educators can opt in. But I think to not innovate with kids like I, I get the sentiment, right. That, that your mentor is expressing, but I, I just think to not innovate with kids, we know what the results of that are and it's not acceptable. How does that strike you? Well, <clears throat> she said it maybe to me twice, but I remember it being such a sort of verbal hand slap <laughs> yeah. that, that I, that I sort of like limped away from it. I was like, of course we don't experiment with children, but then I sort of walked away from it was like, that seems to be as a new teacher, all I was doing actually <laughs> was like, yeah, let's see if this works. Let's, in fact, my mo- most of my successes came from, you know, innovating on wisdom that people were sort of passing on to me and trying to figure out what worked with the unique group of kids in front of me, as well as, you know, my personality. There's, there's sort of training protocol in certain charter schools. I think they're really good at onboarding <laughs> and, yeah. and probably because they're not very good at retaining. And they, they constantly have to hire and sort of get people into to what they do. But 
I felt like that the next frontier would actually be to allow people in those charter schools to innovate, make things their own. And I always wondered if that would sort of lend itself to long-term retention and, and also long-term gains in the classroom. It was sort of like, hey, you do it this way. And I was like, I'm a not a type A person. <laughs> uh, you know, all those sort of like training videos are like the most, it's it's almost like a cheerleader in the front of the room. Yeah, and I, was like, I don't yeah. know how I'm going to replicate that experience. And, yeah, and I was just always judged on that, which was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, right? And and I think what I would say is it's a good point. Like first-year teachers, you know, you were in a charter system that, as you said, did a lot of onboarding and training up front. But you think about how many teachers like from ed school programs or Teach for America go into districts where there's not that sort of scaffolding or support. And by the way, they also have high turnover. And mm -hmm. that first year is a complete experiment. It's based on like, things you had when you were a kid and you went through school, things you picked up in your training program or your, or your educational program. And then like real world hits and you realize that doesn't work with the group of students you have in front of you or your personality or the context or whatever. Right. And you are making adjustments. I, I think that's the other piece of what I advocate for is I, I don't think we should be doing reckless experiments on kids, but I think framing uh, the pursuit of trying to serve them better as a series of small steps that we might make some mistakes, but let's not make some catastrophic failures that are really going to set them back in life. Yeah. And, and there's this interesting opportunity cost that I don't always think is sort of weighed in, which is what happens when we keep running the same play. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's almost like the, the analog would be like, uh, we're coming out of the Super Bowl, right? So it'd be like, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs were like, we're just going to keep, you know, running a bootleg with Patrick Mahomes and, and expose him with the bum ankle, right? And we're just going to keep doing that over and over <laughs> again, even though the Eagles have clearly covered that. And it's like, no, like, you're clearly going to make some changes. And yes, I get it. Kids, you don't want to, the, the sentence comes from a really good place. And I think we should honor that, right? Which is kids are not lab rats. They're not, you know, they're, they're, we're not just like sort of recklessly experimenting on them. And the status quo is clearly not working. So we've got to do something better than that. I, th I think similarly, when I was looking into you a bit, the phrase disruptive innovation seems to follow you wherever you go. Yeah, for better or worse, yeah. Yeah, and sort of on the other side of the spectrum, right? We don't experiment with kids. Like, of course, that sounds good and important and, and should some very, very important part of that needs to be honored. On the other side of the spectrum with the disruptive innovation, I guess I'm curious, how, maybe how do you define that first? But then assuming it, your definition is close to my assumption, <laughs> which might be yeah. dangerous, yeah. What do you, how do you figure out what to disrupt, right? So love the question. And I'll, I'll actually say, and I'll, I'll first, let's draw the parallel explicitly to the first um, sentence right around, we don't experiment on kids, which is to say, I think disruptive innovation is one of these, it's an extremely powerful theory and I'll define it in a moment, but it's one of these buzz phrases that's taken on a life of its own. So everyone wants to disrupt, even though <laughs> no one knows what it necessarily means. And they do it because they're like, I, I don't like the status quo and therefore we've got disruption probably means overthrow and therefore I want to do that. And uh, so it's, I think it's also one of those lines that in a casual conversation sounds great, but maybe loses the context and meaning in a similar way, right? To the sentence that your mentor said to you a couple of times. 
Um, when we're talking about disruptive innovation, we're actually talking about innovations that come into sectors uh, where there are people who are overserved by the existing system or completely not served at all. Mm -hmm. We call them non-consumers. And they can't get access to the best because they lack expertise or wealth, in effect. And so a disruption comes in with something that actually, as judged by historical measures of performance, isn't as good as what's out there, but it's more affordable, it's more convenient, it's simpler to use, it's more accessible, it, it unlocks these new value propositions in effect. And then powered by a technology enabler, it gets better and better and better and better. And then the people who used to go to the uh, old way of doing things, they start saying, hey, I want something that's more affordable, simple, accessible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this now is good enough, right, to get done what I want to do. So outside of education, like a smartphone is a classic example of a disruptive innovation relative to, say, a laptop computer. It's not, it, it you know, originally didn't have the power or functionality of a laptop, but like if you were on the subway and commuting, you didn't have access to a laptop. And so it's better than your alternative, nothing at all. And then it's gotten better and better and better. And like, you know, some people these days don't even have a desktop or a laptop computer, right? They just do all their computing on their smartphone. Um, and that's sort of how we see this play out. And, and then the classic case in education has been uh, online technology or online learning and, and, you know, people looking in and saying, well, like, of course, the brick and mortar, like teacher to student, you know, interaction is the best. And I totally agree. But I think the question has been, are there aspects, right, of the learning environment where, you know, you couldn't give the personalized attention to a student. And so the module that is customizable, right, online, just reaches them where they are and allows them to keep on learning. Or, gosh, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact statistic right now, but it's over a third of school high schools in America don't have access to physics or calculus. Mm -hmm. Well, could you give them access to a teacher online so that they can get going? Um, you can start to draw out the analogies, right? Uh, tutoring, I think, is the classic case. And so it starts in these pockets and then is getting better and better and better. And, and then, of course, my own take is it's not that we're going to be all virtual learning. I think we during the pandemic saw why that won't work. But I do think what we have seen is that digital blended into a traditional brick and mortar environment uh, has an incredible power to personalize learning and make it far more uh, adaptable to a student's needs than sort of the mythical average of a class. And and so I don't know if that's answering your question of what, what do we pick to disrupt, but I, I, th I think the answer is honestly, entrepreneurial educators are basically looking out at the landscape and they're trying things where they see like, Hey, this is, you know, I'd love to give everyone a tutor, but it's inaccessible for most. How could I do something novel, right. To unlock access. And Frankly, if it doesn't solve a meaningful problem, then it doesn't disrupt. And if it does, then it does, right? Yeah, this this might be too nuanced of a question. I might lose myself it's in it. It's all good. <clears throat> but you mentioned the, the cell phone, and of course, you know, the cell phone can sort of be, or especially the iPhone can sort of be straw manned um, with its sort of unforeseen second and third order effects. Yeah, when totally. you're thinking, but of course it does solve so many things in the first order, right? When you're thinking about disruptive education, I know you're involved in the Christensen Institute. How much time is spent thinking about those second and third order effects where it's like, okay, 
we we did solve this, but and we, maybe we were able to knock this wall down. But how do we decide if it's load bearing and maybe something yeah. comes sort of crashing in? Yeah, I love the question, and I'll I'll just make it sort of more real world. I think to what I think you're asking, right? Which is thanks. Let Let's imagine that we can use digital technology, and now everyone is learning at a personalized path and pace for them. Sounds great, but there's a couple risks right, that we might worry about. One of which is sort of obvious, I think, which is that. Uh, you sort of walk into a classroom and it's like night of the living dead. People are just like clicking away like zombies at a machine and never interacting right with sure. each other or doing group projects or the things, you know, really applying the learning in a meaningful way. And so I, I think there's there's one obvious mitigation against it. And then there's the things to think about. So So the obvious one I would argue is actually a core motivation for kids to to engage in schooling and and learn through schooling is that they want a place where they can have fun with their friends. And if schooling isn't doing that, then they tend to look at other activities, whether it's arts, gangs, athletics, video games, right? Like there's a whole host of other things that they engage in and disengage from school in. And so I, I don't worry a ton about like sort of the night of the living dead scenario, because I just don't think it'll work. Hmm. But um, I think the there are second and third order things that you could worry about, right? Like the learning becoming overly reductivist, right? Um, right or wrong, true, false, like not application of knowledge to more interesting problems. And that's where you really, I think, from a policy lens or from leading a school lens, you really want to be super thoughtful about, okay, what are the learning objectives I really want my students to master, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually want to move to a mastery-based model instead of a time-based one where I'm going to say, Kevin's going to work, you know, if, if you need more time in this project to demonstrate mastery of these underlying skills, great, you could have more time, but it's really about uh, richer learning objectives rather than things that sort of get overly narrow and too rules-based such that ChatGPT could just do it by itself and we don't need people in the first place. And, and so that's to me where you do want to spend a lot of time about around purpose and what is a good outcome and, and, and thinking about the end state and then map, backward mapping from there as opposed to just assuming we'll stay with the existing system, just sub-technology and everything will be great because there will be unintended consequences. That, that backward mapping... In that backward mapping, do you use that backward mapping to sort of obsess over the product or do you use that backward mapping to think about the implementation? Is it sort of the goal to sort of make the product so it can flawlessly yeah. be implemented or are you like, okay, the way this is implemented is going to be sort of crucial? Yeah. So to me, implementation matters a ton and it's also very local. Like mm -hmm. I, I just... The thing that I've learned is we love to look at the charter school in K-12 education and be like, how do I scale that? And we want to do it with such fidelity that there's, you know, that that it'll be magical or something like that. And when we say something like that, I think the mental model a lot of us have is software, which is like you have a, you know, however many lines of code, we copy and paste it a billion times and wow, voila, we've scaled. The reality, I think, is on the ground that contexts are different. The students you're working with are different. Communities are different. The goals are different in certain places. A teacher's skill sets are different in different places, right? There's all this variation. And so to me, the more useful analogy is civil engineering in, mm -hmm. instead of software engineering. And, and when I say that, it's sort of like, 
the laws of physics don't change from place to place, right? Like um, uh, things that explain how a bridge will be load bearing and, and suspend across a two bodies of water, right? Um, are, are constant, or excuse me, a body of water, two bodies of land um, are constant. But how those get implemented in different localities is very different. So if you're putting in a bridge in San Francisco, you're thinking about earthquakes and you're right and uh, and and wind and stuff like that. If you're doing it where I live outside Boston, you're thinking about snow and erosion and like the context is very different. And so how you build and the actual implementation um, is very different. The principles maybe extend, right? Uh, and they're guiding. And so in this case, I'd say mastery based is a really important principle. Uh, personalization is a really important principle. Um, you know, that that I'm not just doing knowledge, but I'm doing skills and applying them and developing habits of success and things like that. Super important that it's mixing in projects alongside that, right? Um, certain principles, I think, are incredibly important, but how they apply, I, I just don't think it's like, uh, it's sort of like a paint by numbers. Um, it's I, I really think you want the community to come together and for them to think about the purpose and the end state and then them to map backwards and uh, for them to really design something that works for their community and their students. And hmm. I think we have to be very wary of one size fits all suggestions that this is going to be sort of too e very easy to do. Interesting. You mentioned chat GPT. Does AI seem to be the sort of asterisk there where it's like... <laughs> you have this thing that can be adaptive that might be able to be dropped into the certain problems? Yeah. So I think AI will serve a clear purpose on certain things, right? I, I confess, even though I'm the tech guy, I'm somewhat skeptical of some of the use cases for AI. And so hmm. uh, I'll, I'll give you the one that I think is maybe most uh, unlikely, which is um, everyone's like, oh, AI has now obliterated the English essay, except that if you feed your prompt into chat GPT, you're likely to get errors and, you know, it, it messes up facts. I mean, I was doing something yesterday with it, trying to understand the dollars per pupil that uh, Sierra Leone spends. And it said $96. And I said, where's your source for that? And it gave it to me. And then I tried to do the conversion and I kept getting a different number. And so I wrote back to it. And I was like, I'm not getting the same number as you. This is the number I'm getting. Am I wrong? And it was like, oh, I'm mistaken. Sorry. Yeah, I'm a text-based um, learning thing. Right? Yeah, I'm a t it be, and it's <laughs> fundamentally, it's probabilistic, right? Like this is not a sentient, omnipotent, like God <laughs> that we're mm -hmm. interacting with. It's computer code that is probabilistic, that takes a bunch of uh, data that it's able to process. And then, it, you know, based on what's most likely to be the answer, spits back, right, um, responses to you super valuable tool. I think it's an incredible aid to student work that we ought to be teaching them how to use responsibly. Um, and I don't think it's like gonna just automate or revolutionize like instruction in this sort of completely rules-based way. I, I, one more example on it. A lot of people are like, well, the AI, you just feed it a bunch of data. It should be able to tell you what Kevin should learn next on his learning path. Yeah, but like AI is built off of big data models that are looking at the average. It's not looking at like your particular working memory capacity and understanding 
the, uh, you know, your background knowledge and whether you had breakfast or not that morning and whether you got enough sleep and like, it's not capable of understanding all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, it really needs to be built, I think, on the back of really sound instructional design, really good theories of learning, really good educators using it. And in that environment, you know, I think AI is like for a program, say like Carnegie Learning for learning math, really useful. Like they've done a ton of rigorous research with Carnegie Mellon. Um, they have a, a, a sense of the scope and sequence of a curriculum, how different concepts connect with each other. AI is really good at saying like Michael's miss understanding is this, therefore we're going to feed him it, um, you know, this problem to try to help him understand it, but it's built in a logic model that's sort of already constructed based on humans doing research and things of that nature. Mm. And it's not, it's not foolproof. And I don't, I I'm, I'm skeptical that it will be anytime soon. Interesting. And of course I could almost imagine a counter argument where it's like, you know, that undertrained, underpaid second grade teacher isn't foolproof either. And I, and I start to wonder if there's some sort of hybrid. Yeah. And that's, that's where I think we go. Right. Like, so I think you just nailed it. Right. Which is totally valid. I mean, I've long said, like, we know that elementary school teachers um, have a propensity to struggle in math in particular. Right. Hmm. Um, I've long said, like, if we implemented blended learning designs uh, across America's classroom, where every kid had like ST math for kindergarten, um, we would up level 80% of classrooms tomorrow. We might hmm. down level about 20%, by the way. Interesting. But but I think we would up level like 80% of classrooms tomorrow. And it would really function on the principle of complementarity, though, right? Hmm. Which is it would not replace teachers. Instead, it would say, like, we're freeing up teachers to spend time in those one-to-one -one small group interactions where they right. can really understand what the child's struggling with emotional, mental state, how to reach motivation wise, right, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And the computer will be providing this like strong core, right, a foundation of learning. Um, and the two together in the same way that, um, you know, Deep Blue can beat the best chess player in the world uh, with just right. AI. But it turns out that AI plus a bunch of amateur chess players actually beat Deep Blue, right? And so uh, it's I think the principle of complementarity is really strong here. Fascinating. I just want to peek at the time. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. When people talk about education reform or when I first started hearing about it, I was struck by this sort of philosophical problem where I almost imagine education reform is not necessarily a non-starter, but going to be a difficult haul considering I don't imagine you can get 10 people <laughs> to agree yeah. on what an 18-year-old should know, be like, or be able to do. When you think about education reform, do you think that that large and philosophical or is that just does that become kind of spinning and you become more pragmatic? What's your the ebb and flow? What, what's your I default love the disposition? I, I love the question. It's a good observation. Um, I think the honest answer is it depends on the day. Sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, how much coffee you have. And, <laughs> and how much. Right, right. Am I ready to dig in or not? Uh, but the um, I, you know, I think I try to keep it somewhat simpler in the sense of. I do think that there's a set of things that we ought to be able to agree at a more foundational level that that um, kids ought to be able to learn in terms of how to read, do some level of math. I personally would say it's not algebra. It's before that, I would argue. Um, mm. I know plenty of people disagree with me. Uh, mm. um, uh, and then, you know, 
civics and certain things, right? Like certain things like that. And then I would be in favor of giving students a lot of choice once they've mastered that core for them to figure out like, what am I passionate about? What do I want to go dig into? Where do I want to go deeper? Where do I want to move faster uh, and explore more? Hmm. Particularly as you get older and you sort of have mastered those foundational knowledge and skills. Um, I think that's my like simplistic construct so that I can get a little bit more pragmatic on certain questions. But I do think that that is fundamentally the opportunity or challenge, right, that we have as a society is that at some level, I think there needs to be a conversation in each community around like, what is that core? And then where do we let, you know, individual students sort of branch off? Hmm. Fascinating. And and if you don't mind, as perhaps as a closing question, I sort of mentioned the load-bearing wall, and I think there's there's a conservative impulse when they hear education reform. It's like we can't just go like knocking down walls, <laughs> and it, and making you know all classrooms sort of wallless. That wall, for example, yeah. might be load-bearing, which I've always sort of appreciated. Um, are there, as opposed to just looking forward and maybe like sort of just breaking things and trying new things, are there models of the educational past that you sort of look to as a golden age? Or do you sort of picture everybody question. having a private Socrates <laughs> or are, yeah. are there educational models that you think about sort of combining with, with modern technology to sort of replicate at scale? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, one of the most powerful, I think has been with us for over a century, which is Montessori education. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mastery based. It's got a lot of projects. It's really uh, personalized for each child. And there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration. So I think, from a principal standpoint, we can learn a lot from Montessori education. Um, full disclosure, both my kids are in a Montessori school and it's, uh, it, and it's great. Um, so, so I think that's one place. I think tutoring is a second place for sure. And I think the deep irony of the current moment that we're in is like, everyone's like, oh, we need more tutoring for kids to catch them up on learning loss. And it's like, well, if that's the best way for us to learn, what would it look like for us to reconstruct schools with that at the heart of the experience right? and then build out from there as opposed to what's happening right now, which is we're sort of appending it on the fringes of education, but not questioning the fundamental model. And I think there's something deeply sad, frankly, about like, we've got a lot of research on the power of tutoring. We know it's an incredibly powerful way to, to learn. Why wouldn't we take that and put that at the heart of the exper experience? That doesn't seem to me to be, it, it would be an innovation, but it doesn't seem to me to be an experiment. It's something we know would help a lot more kids make progress uh, in their lives. And mm -hmm. so the, I, I know we're running out of time, but like those are two models that I think uh, we can learn a lot from and, and we, ought to, we, we ought to take more advantage of. Awesome. I have a thousand questions I want to ask, but I have to stop the clock here. Thank you, Michael, so much. Um, happy to pick up next time, possibly with a second conversation. But in the meantime, yeah, I was gonna say let's. I was gonna say why don't we try to do it again in a few months? And uh, this this has been fun. Just at a, just at an early uh, entry point to start to dig in. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks and good luck, and I, I hope to hear from you soon.